0: Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, Culture Editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine, and for the first time, by Chris Orr, uh, who is filling in for Alyssa on her maternity leave. Chris, say hi to the people. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Chris. We're excited to have him here for uh, the next, uh, you know, six weeks, two months. We'll see what we'll see how long it takes Alyssa to get back, but thank you for for joining us. Really appreciate it. First up in, well, controversies, not really controversies and non-troversies here. A tragedy struck the set of the film Rust, which stars Alec Baldwin when director of photography Galena Hutchins was killed and director Joel Souza was wounded when the gun Baldwin was using in a scene accidentally discharged. There are a lot of different things to discuss here. Uh, the question of on-set safety is the Big one, of course, uh, and it's clear that there was much to be desired on that front. According to the Los Angeles Times, cameramen had walked off the set to protest the lack of safety, the lack of safety meetings, uh, the long hours, and a previous accidental discharge on set by Baldwin's stunt double. Um, I've been on a handful of sets, and one thing that has always jumped out to me is that whenever there is a weapon involved, the number of safety protocols that are supposed to be in place are very large and very redundant. Uh, Weapons should rarely be hot that is loaded, and when they are hot, everyone on set should know that. You should have a bunch of people running around, yelling hot weapon, hot weapon. Um, And and as soon as the scene is over, that weapon should be returned back to uh, the armor or or prop master or whoever is in charge of them. Uh, reporting thus far suggests that Baldwin believed his weapon to be unloaded, um, suggesting that Alec Baldwin actor might be in the clear in this situation. But Alec Baldwin producer is very much not in the clear. Safety meser- measures have clearly broken down. There were concerns on set. Uh, and look, somebody died. Something, Somebody died. Somebody has messed up very badly here. Um, Baldwin and the armor and the prop master are going to have a lot of explaining to do. And if I had to guess, there's going to be a few lawsuits in the offing. Um, a secondary issue here is the way the whole matter was treated in media, both social and traditional. Uh, many people treated this like a tragedy. Uh, most people did. A handful like Ohio Senate hopeful J.D. Vance treated it as an opportunity to crack wise about Alec Baldwin's liberalism. Uh, others like notorious Twitter scolds, um, uh Ora Bogato. She uh decided to use this as a, a, a chance to highlight Baldwin's sexism for remembering the fact that this woman was a mother, in addition to being a valued colleague. Uh, it was all, it, it is as many of these things are, you know, kind of weirdly ugly. Even the traditional media, like I said, got in on the act. The New York Times kind of darkly hinted that, you know, Alec Baldwin had a history of temper on set as if to suggest that he had shot these people in a fit of anger or something. It was, it was weird. It was a weird time. Um, Chris, what, what are some of your, some, what are some of the takeaways here? What should we be, uh, kind of keeping in mind from both a journalism perspective and just a movie appreciation perspective as we're watching this story? unfold.
1: Sure. Well, I, I mean, as you mentioned, I think the number one thing here is the, the question of just gun safety on set. Um, and, and I do think it's worth noting that despite despite the literally thousands upon thousands of rounds, most of them blanks and some of them not live rounds at all that are, that are shot in film and on television every single year, Um, This is the third episode that I can recall of somebody being severely injured or killed. Um, Obviously, Brandon Lee in The Crow, um, Bruce Lee's son, was shot when accidentally there was an actual bullet in the chamber of the gun in front of the blank that was supposed to be firing, and he was killed. Uh, And then back earlier, um, and a bit less famously, Don Eric Hexham. You guys probably don't remember his show. I think it was called Cover Up. It was not a good show. Um, But but shot himself in the head uh, with a blank because he evidently didn't know that a blank actually was a cardboard piece of paper, which would decelerate very quickly with air pressure. But if you put it right up against your temple, it would go straight into your brain and kill you. And that's what happened with him. So, uh, I mean, I think it's worth noting that it's incredibly rare that something like this happens. I mean, one in a hundred thousand, one in a million. Um, And the reason is, as you said, Sonny, there are very clear precautions on set, as there should be. Um, I mean, I think the commentary about, about Alec Baldwin kind of falls into three categories. I mean, and the one is the people wanting to score cheap political points. You mentioned JD Vance saying we need Trump back on Twitter because that famed wit and humorist would undoubtedly have something extremely clever to say <laughs> about Alec Baldwin. Um, yeah, and that's all nonsense. His politics don't matter. I mean, uh, you know, if it had been Mel Gibson, you'd have an entirely different crowd of people crowing about it. Um, I think the idea that he did this in a violent rage is, again, from the little we know, and there's a lot we don't know, is also just absurd. There's there's no evidence that I've seen that remotely um, supports that. You know, I do think, however, I mean, he has a pretty well-established history as, a, you know, a narcissist and occasionally a bully um, and a selfish human being. And we know that On his set, safety was a very low priority, and there had been members of the crew who had complained and walked off the set. Uh, And I do think that's relevant, and and insofar as you can portray um, Alec Baldwin, and I think you can as a selfish man with very little concern for others, it does kind of play into this. I mean, if the producer of this film had been Tom Hanks and this had happened, I think we would all be completely flabbergasted in a way that we're not. We hear about this with Alec Baldwin, and I think on yeah. some level there's a, yeah, Alec Baldwin kind of sounds like the kind of guy who, if he were a producer of a movie, might be a little sloppy and not that worried about the safety of his crew. So, again, there are a lot of details we don't know. I think you're right. Yeah. There will almost certainly be lots of litigation. Um, and I don't, I don't want to prejudge Alec Baldwin in any way, but, but I'm not sure it's, it's absurd to point out that this is a guy with something of a history of sort of selfishness.
0: Yeah, Peter. What are you, there there is? There's also a labor uh, aspect to all this. There was talk of the IATSE members who were part of the film crew had, had were the ones who walked off the set. They were replaced by non-union members. I think like the morning of or the day the day before this this all happened. So there there is there is also kind of a a, a labor a labor rights issue here.
2: Well. I think it's worth separating some of the labor rights issues from the specific weapons safety issues, and and they are possibly related here, but it's I, I don't think they are that the overlap is exactly the same because it seems to me that what the uh, the people who walked off the set were complaining about mostly was intolerably long hours, which are themselves a kind of safety issue they were talking about, right? Having to drive 50 miles back after 12 to 14 hour days, which is, but it's a different kind of safety issue. It's not the one that was most relevant here. the, the, the concerns that I think are, are the most relevant here are people said the the weapons that we have on set are not being handled safely. There was a prior unintended discharge. So that's, There's like, I mean, again, we don't know all the details. We don't know how much, how big a concern this was. And frankly, I'm not somebody who has worked on movie sets, uh, you know, all of my life. So I don't have 10 years worth of movie sets experience to know exactly how unusual the complaints were or the, the, uh, issues with the, the firearm safety onset were at all. On the other hand, the fact that people had them is relevant. The fact that there was a discharge that was not intended—that's a very big deal, actually. I mean, right? Like, if you if you are on uh, if you are at a gun range and a gun goes off and someone didn't mean to, even if it is even if there's absolutely no damage to anything, that even if it's completely fine, if that happens, everything needs to shut down right now, and everybody needs to find out what's going on, right? Like, yeah. and so. You know, so I, I work for Reason Magazine, which is like a notably pro-gun ownership, pro Second Amendment publication. But one of the things that I have learned as a non-gun owner who uh, who works at this publication, who has a lot of uh, gun owner friends, um, my uh, a bunch of pals in Kentucky who are collectors and and shooters, um, but I'm not a gun owner myself. But uh, whenever we publish anything about about guns and gun rights, especially if there is an image involved. Our gun owning readers will write in in mass to correct even the tiniest breach of safety protocol that is shown in, even in like a, a stock image, right? And so, this is actually a useful thing for me to understand is that gun owners, uh, the majority of them, the ones who care about this stuff, are and should be correct, like, uh, incredibly obsessed with like the extremely fine points of gun safety and to take that even a little bit carelessly right to be just a little bit lax is a huge violation of protocol and again i don't know whether you know look somebody very slightly mishandled this weapon is actually a common thing on our on an indie film with a bunch of violence right with a with some okay corral type shootouts uh but the thing that I've learned from, from a lot of interaction with pretty serious gun owners and shooters, uh, folks who for whom this is like a, a hobby, and avocation, and a lifestyle, is that you have to be completely obsessed at every minute and that even the smallest breach of protocol is simply not acceptable and that you have to stop, start over, and see what's going on, regardless of whether there actually appears to be even like the uh, – a, a small chance or like like again like i was saying if a gun goes off on a gun range and nothing bad happens at all and even if it kind of hits a target if it was unintended if somebody did something accidentally if it was out of right if it was a if it was a thing that wasn't intended to happen that's really bad and you have to like see yeah. what like you have to go investigate that immediately and it seems like maybe that didn't happen on this set you mentioned time. Time is a big factor on a film
0: production, just and in general. Time, time is money. Time is literally money when it comes yep. to making movies.
2: Incredibly uh, the longer, even at this, at the lowest budget.
0: The longer, the more days that it takes you to shoot something, the more expensive a thing is. That's just that's just how it works. Uh, and so the The argument that you know uh, safety corners were being cut, safety meetings were being skipped uh, is one thing that I have heard that they were not nearly enough safety meetings, which is the that that is where uh, you know you will have an armor. Gather the crew and say: Here are the things you need to be doing when you're given a live gun. You need to you need to check to see if there are uh, bullets in it. You need to check to see what kind of bullets there are in it. If it is, uh, if it is live, if it is hot, you need to ensure that the right kind of round is in it. You need to know where you're firing. You know all, all of this stuff, um, and uh, you know and and a and a competent armor will be able to say to a director or uh, the, the first AD who is, who is, you know, kind of the guy who was in charge of safety, the first assistant director, um, or the,
2: also the uh, XO, or the, right. Like he's Denzel Washington and Crimson Tide.
0: Right, right. Or the, or the, or the cinematographer who is always going to be around the camera and always going to be kind of looking through the viewfinder. Like a competent armor will be able to say this shot that you are trying to do is safe or unsafe. And if it is unsafe, you need to do it the proper way. Um, so, again, it just like the the issue, you know, a, a lot of people are throwing around ideas like, oh, we need to get rid of guns entirely off of sets or, oh, we need to we need to ensure that all muzzle flashes are done in post and all, you know, all of this kind of beats around the bush, which is the real problem is that you if you if you do not take safety seriously um, and if you treat guns with anything less than utmost respect, somebody somebody is more likely to get hurt uh, even if that, even if that likelihood is still pretty small. Um, and that's, that's, that's the, I, I don't know. That's just the big takeaway from this for me. The, I don't know. the
2: case that Chris mentioned earlier where the guy from coverup, um, shot himself was because he was joking around. He, yeah. he just picked up a gun and was like, wouldn't it be funny? And, and did not realize. And it was entire, it was a, it was a breach of safety protocol because he wasn't taking it seriously.
1: I believe his exact line. And again, I'm digging back into my memory of the event in 1984. But I believe his exact line was, I wonder if there's one in here for me. And he said it grinning, thinking that a gun with blanks was totally safe. And he shot himself in the brain and died immediately. Yeah. Um, I would just add one more thing. Honey, you mentioned the assistant director uh, and I'm not going to mention his name because I don't recall it immediately. And in part because I don't want to make him famous before we know uh, more about what happened. But, But the assistant director who it appears handed the gun, um, to Baldwin and declared the gun safe, shouted out cold gun. Uh, apparently there have been, there had been concerns with his safety record on previous sets. So again, who is to blame for this is I think a very open question, but, uh, yeah. I mean, as you both noted, something went horrifically, terribly wrong. Um, and again, I'm not sure that this means that, that you know, actual handguns can't be used in film anymore and it should all be digitized or something like that. Because again, we're talking three deaths
0: in, you know, 30 plus years. Um, Yeah. But I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing. Sets are actually incredibly safe. I mean, considering the dangerous, the incredibly dangerous stuff you oftentimes see, you know, take place on screen, the, the relatively small number of like stuntman, um, uh, deaths and, and serious injuries is a, is, a, is a relatively, again, good sign that things are usually done right. But when they're done wrong, somebody needs to be held accountable. And uh, like, whether it's criminal or civil, you know, I, I, I leave that up to, to the courts and everybody else. But somebody, somebody on this set is and should be in a fairly large amount of trouble. And uh, until we know more, I don't think we'll know exactly who that person is, but somebody somebody needs to somebody needs to pay for this because a, a terrible a terrible thing has has happened. All right, uh, again, this is not really controversy or a controversy. it just is is what it is. It's obviously a controversy. Um, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com. Uh, we're gonna have uh, a special bonus episode talking about our favorite movies by uh, the director Denis Villeneuve. That's how I'm going to pronounce it every time. Speaking of which, uh, on to the main event, Dune, or I should say Dune Part 1, as some surprised moviegoers learned when the title card popped onto the screen. Uh, That's right, folks. Unless you have been reading the trades and the nerd blogs, you might have missed that this is only the first half of the adaptation of Frank Herbert's book, Dune. Uh, You might have missed that because the marketing has been, I don't want to say, deceptive but not exactly forthcoming. And none of the ads, none of the posters, none of the trailers has this film been described as its full title, Dune Part One. It's just been Dune. Uh, and on some of the posters there were, It Begins, and you're like, Oh, It Begins? I oh, Okay, sure. Uh, but Dune, just Dune, uh, it's a minor issue uh, because this is very much one half of a, uh, one half, of one movie. And look, I liked this one half of one movie. Uh, Denis Villeneuve knows how to make a film look good. Every (laughs) single image is conveying information and the whole thing zips along from scene to scene, despite the two and a half hours. And despite the fact that this is only one half of one story, uh, the pacing is very solid. It's never boring. We see the Harkonnens leave Arrakis where the spice needed for interstellar travel is mined. We see House Atreides arrive. And then we see the Harkonnens come back a few minutes later and like, no, we're actually going to kill all of you. Sucks to be you. You jerks. Uh, I would argue that we don't get nearly enough of the political intrigue to understand why all of this is happening, why Duke Leto, who is played by Oscar Isaac, is set up for murder by the emperor uh, and why the Harkonnens, led by their baron, who's played by Stellan Skarsgård, uh, are, you know, there and, and doing their things. We don't really understand the importance of Paul, played by Timothy Chalamet, to the Benedict Gesserets, an order of witches to which Paul's mother Jessica belongs. We don't really even get much of a sense of why the spice itself is important. This is what is being fought over. We just know it's needed for space travel and it's expensive. So sure, why not? Um, I don't mind all this, honestly, uh, because everything that's happening on screen is so interesting. I love the way Skarsgård is channeling Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now as a Baron Harkonnen. Uh, and I am like the thing. The, the actor I was actually most impressed by in this movie is Jason Momoa, who is not in it a ton, but his evolution into a genuine A-list screen presence uh, hits its high water mark here. Oscar Isaac continues to have a great year. Rebecca Ferguson is a delight as Jessica. Again, the real problem with this movie is that it just kind of stops. It doesn't even leave on a cliffhanger. It just like kind of stops, and I don't think that would be too much of an issue. Um, If the sequel were already shot and we were just waiting six months or so for it to drop a la The Matrix Revolutions or Kill Bill Volume 2 or the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Uh, You do it all back to back. It's there. You understand that this is part one of a two part series and boom, it's great. Um, But this has all this. this, I'll just put it. I'll be very blunt. I don't blame people if they feel a little bit tricked uh, by this. That said, still pretty good. Peter, how many times have you watched it? By now, have you watched it 10 times yet? Have you watched it in IMAX and on your phone and on your TV and on an
2: iPod video player that you own? So I've seen it twice. And by the time this episode airs, I will have seen it a third time, Uh, once in a theater, once at home already. And I'm going to see it uh, in a great uh, Dolby theater here in Washington, D.C. that has, uh, I think, the best sound system in the area, um, in part because this is such a great sound movie. I mean, we've talked about the visuals, but this is a movie that wouldn't work the same way without an incredible score and also just a, an incredible soundscape and it's notable that the movie actually starts before the title screen rolls before you even see the warner brothers uh, uh logo it actually starts on a black screen with a weird sound right and it's the sound of like a d- weird dune language or something right like and it's it, and it, there's a little translation and it's something about dreams or whatever before but like the first thing that happens is not an image in this movie It is a sound, because this movie is communicating with you uh, as much through its sound choices and through its soundscape as through the images. I absolutely loved it. And I agree with some of your criticisms. Um, In particular, I think... There like I the movie isn't doesn't feel finished. It really feels like a like the greatest pilot ever shot in some ways, right? Like I I, I just I want to watch 10 episodes of this, um, even though we're probably only gonna get one more, and that'll be that. Uh, at the same time, everything that's there works so exceptionally well. I'm completely willing to forgive uh, you know, some of the lack of detail about the political intrigue. I mean, it's actually sort of notable how little exposition there is in this movie. Yes, there's some film books where the you you know the sandworms and uh, walking on that. You know how exactly how to do the fremen weird. You know min- ministry of silly walks uh, dance over the <laughs> dunes is explained. But but this movie does not fall into the trap that it easily could have and just been a whole bunch of exposition. Instead, it just sort of walks you through what's happening and lets you figure it out. And it actually removes a bunch of the stuff that's in the book. For example, unless I'm just completely mistaken. The word Mentats is never spoken in this movie. And instead you have, um, you have uh, uh, Paul, uh, the Leto, uh Mentat, who um, uh, are uh, 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 anyway, I can never remember that guy's exact name, but he shows up there at the beginning, right? He's like counting the amount of, uh, you know, spice dollars that they would have had to spend for the empire to come and bring the proclamation themselves. And his eyes just go white for a little bit. And that's it. That's the only way that you sort of get that referenced. And it's really smart to just kind of say, here's just let it be in the world and not say okay and now we're gonna have somebody say wow isn't it great that you used your mentat powers let's have a little dialogue about explaining mentats and what they are and their place in this world how they're kind of advisors to the various houses like no no the the movie's just like no we're just gonna like hope the audience gets it by the way we stage these scenes and the scene the scenes are all staged so stunningly that it almost doesn't matter like what's happening or like sort of the plot or the through line or whether you fully grasp every little detail and how it relates to the book. Every single image and sound in this movie just works beautifully. And that's what I want from movies, especially from big movies. And that's why I have seen it twice already. And we'll see it at least a couple more times uh, here, even before it leaves the theatrical run. Uh, Chris, what did you make of Dune? Uh, you know, I would say I
1: basically agree with most of what of what both of you have said. I mean, I did think it was really striking that the last line in the movie, if I if I recall correctly, is Zendaya saying, "This is only the beginning," and obviously that's intended as a sort of slightly cheeky inside joke. Yeah. but it's also completely the truth. <laughs> it's not a joke <laughs> so much as a statement of fact, which is we've just given you a two and a half hour prologue. Um, it's not only that it's the first half of the book, but I think it's the less important half of the book. It's the more setting up what will take you know in establishing the universe part of the book and a huge amount of what happens in the first book. And it should be noted also that there are at least there are five or six sequels that Frank Herbert wrote himself, and many more that his son wrote. So if Denis Villeneuve wanted to and could could get a revenue stream, he could keep making Dune movies for the next 35 years. We can only hope. So I agree. I do think it was a little bit of a bait I mean, Netflix. And is, Netflix will buy anything, right? It's- <laughs> um, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, Sonny. I do think it felt like a bit of a bait and switch where you're sort of just I mean, yeah. I think. To some degree, you're just entering the meat of the story. You're sort of just getting at the point where exciting things are going to happen. And then they sort of say like, oh, this is only the beginning and the credits are yeah.
0: I mean, I mean, the funny thing is I like I knew that it was they had only filmed half the book because I do read Deadline and I read, you know, uh, Collider. I read all I read, you know, I, I've seen all the stories and uh and they have they have not been hiding this in interviews or anything. But they, they have. I mean, I would argue they have literally been hiding it from the advertising campaign. This this has not been marketed as Dune Part One. It's been marketed as Dune. Yeah. And that I like I don't blame. I don't blame folks for not being. Uh, thrilled by that when they when they get there and the first image the first after the sound uh, is Dune Part One they're like wait wait Part One I don't know it's a it's a little thing and I would actually have less of a problem if it just ended on a straight up cliffhanger if it just ended with him like starting his fight with the fremen is he gonna die or whatever but like ending it where they ended it's just like okay we're done yeah done with this well
1: I I completely agree with you on that Sonny but I also want to say I also completely agree with Peter. <laughs> It is an immersive experience. It is less a sort of narrative-driven experience than just, uh, this is the single movie of the year that if you're going to see any movie in theaters, this is the one to see in a theater. Um, It is, it's visually absolutely astonishing. The score, which is by Hans Zimmer, I actually hadn't known that for certain. I had thought it might be by um, Johan Johansson, the uh, Icelandic composer who did Arrival, because like that, Uh, It is it's not a musical score. It is just an immersive score of booming noises and buzzing. And it's just it it creates a mood that is extremely powerful. Um, And there are only a few scenes that don't have music, including including the fight at the end with the with the friend, which where it is very striking that you've sort of been in this immersive soundscape for two plus hours. And suddenly you just hear two people sort of scuffling around and fighting and and it actually it's a clever inversion of the usual thing where you would have the score get louder during the fight. Uh, I mean, I would just add that it's, I, I have rarely seen a a film that I think is more of a director's film and less of an actor's film. There are actors in this movie whom I absolutely adore. Um, I mean, Oscar Isaac, you guys mentioned, I, I think, and you guys have spoken about this earlier, but I think the card counter is the best film I've seen this year and his performance in it is the best performance I've seen this year. I think Oscar Isaac is a monstrous talent and maybe the worst thing (laughs) about the last star Wars trilogy is that it it gave him absolutely not one single useful thing to do and took up basically a decade of his career. Um, But I mean, I think he's fantastic. Um, You know, on the other hand, I'm, I'm a bit cool, at least relative to most people on Timothee Chalamet, I'm still sort of, Waiting to be wowed by him, um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, in either case, or in Rebecca Ferguson, the the Swedish actress who plays um, Paul Leto's wife and Paul's mother, it's not that any of the performances are bad by any stretch. It's just that they don't really matter on some level because what he is doing is just establishing a look and and again a soundscape that is incredibly powerful. It's it's I mean it's quite similar to what he did uh, in his previous, and I think very underrated film, um, Blade Runner 2049. Um, but but it's really potent. I mean, it, it did not feel like yeah. a two and a half yeah. hour movie to me, despite the fact that it had maybe 45 minutes worth of genuine plot in it. It didn't feel long. I didn't get bored now that won't be true of everyone I mean
2: blade runner 2049 similarly just speeds along despite being i think 2 hours and 43 minutes something like that yeah. you know and so, yeah, so he, I, his he, pacing's really good uh, he I, makes he makes long movies that
0: are paced very well which is which is impressive uh, peter i just want i want we're talking about the soundscape a lot and i i just want us all i want us to make briefly the argument for seeing this in imax or dolby or some other uh, format uh, as opposed to seeing it at home. the The thing that jumps yeah. out at me is watching this in a theater. When when either Jessica or Timothy or the the head Bene Gesser- Gesserit, which whatever I forget her name, um, uses the voice, the the psychological trick that compels people to behave. Um, it it is it is it's it rumbles right through you i mean it is it is like an actual physical sensation um in a theater and i haven't watched it at home yet i just i cannot imagine how that plays the same at home as a dozen theaters
2: yeah so i have a very good sound system i mean a really really good a 9.1 dolby atmos sound system in my basement with with very good speakers including a very large subwoofer and i can produce an effect that is i want to say somewhat comparable and yet it still doesn't have the kind of raw power that you that it just has seeing it first of all with the much bigger screen i've got you know a nice oled television but it's not like i have a movie theater in my house and there's also just something about seeing it in the company of other people and so this is i right multiple other people some of whom are strangers experiencing that crazy crazy sound with you there is a, it's not quite like a rock concert, but in the same way that if you see your favorite band play a song that you know, and it sounds pretty much just like it does on this, on, on, you know, on a CD, there's still something different seeing it happen there with other people in attendance and, and experiencing it together. And I think most people's sound systems just will not be able to process this uh, soundscape in a way that reflects the intent and power of the original uh, you know of, of what you're going to get in even a just okay movie theater much less you know a, a dolby theater um and uh even if you have a really really good sound system at home it's different and better in the theater i i can say this as someone who has a good sound system and has seen it both at home and in a theater it's it's just notably different and this is a movie that like i said i i bought tickets for a second uh, in-theater show pretty much as soon as I got out of the press screening.
1: Well, Peter, first, let me just say uh, I'm awaiting an invitation to your basement to watch all <laughs> of my favorite movies. Um, <laughs> but did we want to talk just briefly about about prior attempts to do Dune and why it was sort of seen as an unfilmable sure. movie? I saw the, uh, the David Lynch one in theaters,
2: um, and I guess I was in Oh wow! What was that? so like? How did people respond? So I, I mean, I saw that movie. You know, when I was twelve on VHS, and have seen it a number VHS. of times since. And so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with that movie. And that was actually my first experience with the story. I didn't read the book until I was an adult. Um, but uh, how was that movie received at the time?
1: It was not received well. Now I, I had <laughs> a slightly unique experience in that. Um, I had a stomach bug and had to leave the theater to go to the bathroom for about 15 minutes. Um, but, uh, and was just, so not, you actually understood it was, better than anybody sorry, else. I, I am not blaming the movie for my intestinal distress. Um, although it certainly did not help my intestinal distress. It was a mess of a movie. People didn't like it. And it went the exact opposite way. Uh, I think, well, maybe not the exact opposite way, but as Sonny, you were pointing out that, uh, that, um, that Villeneuve's film does not spend a lot of time explaining the politics. Um, And overall, I think that's the right choice because you can just get bogged down in exposition forever. Um, And that was, I think, what happened a lot with the David Lynch movie. And then obviously there was the the Jodorowsky movie that never got made but led to the delightful – documentary about its failure to be made jodorowsky's dune yeah uh and although he did not advertise it at the time his plan was that the movie would be
0: 14 hours long (laughs) Um, of course as one would
2: expect from uh jodorowsky i i hope that dune part two is the the uh, the next 11 and a half hours of this right and that we will get let me just give you one. that we will finally get uh, jodorowsky's vision here and in fact, when the other time that this was made was as a miniseries for the sci-fi channel, which I don't know if you guys have seen that. Mm-hmm. I've seen no, I parts of it. I don't know that I watched it all the way through. It's not bad and it's not great either. And it has the advantage of having a much longer time, but it's a sci-fi channel movie. Um, again, not made on the cheapest possible like Sharknado level budget, but it just does they, the filmmakers just did not have the resources, even really that David Lynch had um, in, in terms of dollars per shot, and it shows.
1: I have one little bit of trivia that I need to sneak in here, which is that the producer for Jodorowsky's Dune, which again, was never made, but the producer um, was Michel Seydoux, who is the granduncle of Leia Seydoux, whom you guys spoke about huh. recently uh, with the last Bond movie and who yeah. we all will be talking about next week
0: with the French dispatch, so. Yes, it's the month of Chalamet of uh, this 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 week. Uh I uh, my one acting critique was I thought Dave Bautista in this movie is used weirdly badly. I I like I I thought I thought Bautista is the best part of Blade Runner 2049, which is a good movie. I think one of the best movies of that year and the way Villeneuve used him in that movie as mm-hmm. kind of a quieter um and then suddenly violent, you know, person is is a little bit better than how he is used here which is kind of as a screaming he's a heavy he's a, heavy, you know, he's, a uh, he's a bomb
2: uh, film yeah it, it's but he looks it, great right well, and, sure and and this is i mean this to me justifies the somewhat underutilization of his talents as an acting personality is that he just sort of carries the weight of that you know of of the, the beast of, of the young yes of the uh, of that type of character right the kind of the henchman effectively um so well and i and this goes back to Chris's point about how, in some ways, the acting is irrelevant. Uh, I actually found it very Kubrickian in the way that he basically just sort of treats his actors like props. He's filming them like objects. He's like, no, I'm going to put you here. And then maybe you will move your arm this one place. And that's what we're going to do. But like, I mean, sure, there's more movement than that. But, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm joking a little bit. But if you go back and you watch Kubrick's films, especially from, you know, the the 70s 80s like the up to the shining era barry lyndon in particular he's just he's creating paintings effectively except in in front of the camera and then filming them and vianu is doing something very very similar uh he has he, he doesn't work with color in the same way that kubrick does kubrick you know it's had all of these kind of interesting naturalistic colors and and really uh, uh interesting lighting scapes in, and and vianu is very much a is not is. New stuff is super interesting but it's super monochrome as well right it's always like here is a here's a sort of single uh dominant color and then blacks on top of it right so he's almost shooting as if the film is black and white it's just that instead of being black and white it's black and like a deep weird green black and a you know a sandy brown black right and it's, so it's there's this kind of monochrome black and white aspect to it but then all of the images are just posed so perfectly as if they are almost as if the actors are little action figures that Vianu is playing with, because Vianu is the one who is determining what acting will happen and which and what acting will not happen. The actors are not turning in performances where they're making the choices themselves in some sense. Yeah.
0: Uh, all right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Dune? Peter, you've been very skeptical of the movie yeah. so far. Did you, did you like it? Huge thumbs up. Uh, Chris?
1: Yeah, a, a thumbs up. You know, I have reservations and and... And again, as we've discussed, I do think there is a sort of bait-and-switch element, especially for people who haven't been paying close attention to what's going on with the movie, but but utterly worth watching, and I look forward to the second part.
0: Thumbs incomplete. That's what I would, no, I, no, it's a, it's, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. I hope we get, I hope we get a sequel. It looks like, I mean, by the time this comes out, they, Warner Brothers may have already greenlit the sequel. We'll see. We'll see. But I am, I'm very, I think the numbers this weekend, it looks like it's going to gross about 40 million are solid enough to give them a little more confidence uh, as they, as they reach for that, that green light. So hopefully we get Dune part two soon all right that is it for this week's episode of across the movie aisle uh if you loved it make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on denny villanue's work uh and make sure to tell your friends strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences and we're like sandworms if we don't grow we die uh if you did not love today's episode please complain to me on twitter at sunny bunch i'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed see you guys again next week